Please take a seat. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the great privilege of being able to gather together as your people and to hear your word to us. And Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray for your richest blessing to be upon us. As I speak and as we all listen, that you would work in each heart by your spirit to shape us to be the church we're called to be for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So please do have your Bible open there at Revelation at chapter 2. Uh, we're in verses 12 to 17 this evening. And once again, we're going to be spending our time looking at one of the seven letters sent, of course, by the risen and ascended Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Not just for them, of course, for the church in all places and at all times. And uh, this morning, if you're here, you'll know we looked at the second of the seven letters, the letter to Smyrna, and tonight we turn to the next one, that is the letter to the church in Pergamum, and we'll see what Jesus has to say to them, and therefore what he has to say to us as well in this short letter. Now what do we need to know, first of all, about that city of Pergamum? Pergamum was about 65 miles directly north of the city of Smyrna. In some ways, it was quite like Smyrna. It was a big city. It was an influential city. It was a very wealthy city. One of the things that it was particularly famous for was that it housed the second biggest library in the whole world in those days. Over 200,000 volumes apparently in that library. And interestingly enough, the English word parchment uh, comes to us and is derived from the word for Pergamum. I didn't know that, but there you go. But what Pergamum was particularly known for above anything else was for its idolatry. You could hardly move in Pergamum for temples to different pagan gods. There were at least eight different pagan temples in this city of Pergamum. Now, one of the main forms of worship in that city in those days was the worship of the false god Asclepius. This was the, the god of healing. Asclepius was normally depicted as a snake. And by the way, that's the reason why, uh, even today, when you look at lots of ambulances in certain countries of the world, and also health organizations, you'll recognize that symbol of the snake on them. It's harking back to this god, Asclepius, the god of healing, the snake. And yet, of course, for the Christians who lived in Pergamon back in the first century, a false god in the form of a snake only reminded them of one thing. Of course, it brought to mind Satan, 
who stands behind all false religion. And that's why Jesus describes Pergamum as he does there in verse 13. Notice the description that he gives to that place. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And again, at the end of verse 13, where Satan dwells. And you see, Jesus is referring to the fact that the society of Pergamum was deeply, deeply entrenched in idolatry. Not just the worship of Asclepius, but the idolatry that was rife all throughout that great city. The emperor worship, the worship of Dionysius, the worship of Zeus, the worship of Athena, and so on and so on. All those pagan temples scattered all the way across this great city. All those sacrifices being offered to these false gods day by day. All the banquets held in their honor. Satan had a tight hold on the citizens of this city, leading them into this false, futile worship of these many counterfeit gods. It's a city where Satan dwelt, says Jesus, the place where Satan had his throne. And yet in contrast to that, look at how Jesus introduces himself at the start of the letter. He describes himself there as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, From chapter 1, it's the the sword in the mouth of Jesus, as you may have picked up this morning as we read those verses from chapter 1. The sharp two-edged sword coming from the mouth of Jesus in the vision of Revelation chapter 1. It's an image that gives this idea that Jesus is the one who has supreme authority and authority in particular to act as the judge overall. The sword of judgment issues from his mouth. It's picking up on some of the imagery of the book of Isaiah, some of the prophecies there of the Lord Jesus, how he is the one who would wield this authority as supreme judge over all people. Isaiah writes, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And then again, also from Isaiah, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And so, though it may look like Satan is on the throne in Pergamum, Jesus is saying here that nonetheless, he himself is the judge over Satan. And over all things and all people. And one day he will come in judgment against Satan. And against everyone who has sided with him. And as Jesus looks at the life of this congregation in Pergamum. As he, as it were, holds it in his hand and inspects it and assesses it. Gives his evaluation 
of that church? What does he have to say to them? Well, he sees that they are a church under attack. After all, that's not a surprise, is it? They live where Satan dwells, where Satan has his throne. And as we've been reminded in these past two Sundays, it is the desire of Satan, this great dragon, to attack the woman in the wilderness. That is, to pour out his attacks against the New Testament people of God on earth. And of course, the church in Pergamum, of all places, experienced these attacks of Satan. And as we look at what Jesus has to say in this letter, we see that Satan has been attacking this church in Pergamum in two different ways. One of the attacks the church has dealt with well, and they are commended for that. But the other attacks, sadly, they have dealt with badly, and they are rebuked, and they must repent of this. So what are these two attacks of Satan against the church in Pergamon? Well, the first is, as you might expect, persecution. Once again, there's a, a parallel with the letter to the church in Smyrna. Remember what we were looking at this morning, how the church there was experiencing persecution and slander, the impending threat of imprisonment, execution. And the Christians in Pergamum lived in a, a similar environment, hostile to them, persecution, an everyday reality. And yet, whereas in the letter to Smyrna, Jesus, remember, was looking ahead to this coming time of intense persecution, these 10 days during which the devil would throw some of them into prison. In this letter, Jesus is looking back on an intense time of persecution that the church in Pergamum has already come through. And he says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so in the face of Satan's first mode of attack, this attack of persecution, the church in Pergamum has stood up well, even though they dwell where Satan's throne is, even though idolatry is rife all around them, even though they stick out as, as sore thumbs as Christians, even as they face the ridicule and rejection and hostility of the world around them, even so, they hold fast to the name of Jesus. They're faithful to him, even in a world of hostility and persecution. And you see, Jesus mentions one of their members in particular, this man called Antipas. We've got no idea who he was other than the fact he was clearly a faithful member of their congregation. And at a particular time in the fairly recent past, this persecution against the church had become particularly intense for a season of time. And for some reason that is not known to us, this man Antipas was made the focus 
of that intense attack. And he remained faithful to Jesus, even though in the end it cost him his life. And so Jesus calls him here, my faithful witness. Back in chapter 1, Jesus himself is referred to as the faithful witness. That is, Jesus is the one who supremely was faithful to God, even though that would cost him his life. And here Jesus gives that same title to this heroic believer, Antipas. Antipas, who had followed in his Savior's footsteps by being faithful to God, even though that faithfulness would cost him his life. And so Jesus commends this church for being faithful to him, even in the face of great persecution. And the opposition we face as Christians in this part of the world is nowhere near as intense as what these believers in Pergamum were up against. And yet nonetheless pray that in whatever way hostility to the gospel rears its head against us that we would be faithful witnesses, that we would remain faithful to Jesus, holding fast to his name, even if that should cost us our lives. And yet remember, this is only one of the two attacks of Satan against the church in Pergamum. They've stood up well against this first attack. And yet, against the second attack, things have not gone so well, sadly. What is the the second attack? Well, Satan's second strategy against the church in Pergamum was false teaching. So Jesus continues, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to go back, of course, to the story of Balaam. It's in the book of Numbers. Now, you probably know some of the story of Balaam, how Balak, the king of Moab, tried to hire Balaam to put a curse on the people of God, the people of Israel. And yet God would not allow him to do that, and instead Balaam pronounced a blessing upon God's people. You might not know what happened next after that, what Balaam did next. Uh, He said to Balak, the the king of the Moabites, and I, I paraphrase here, he says, well, Balak, your plan for me to put a curse on the people of Israel has not worked, clearly. And so we need a second strategy now against the people of God. There's another way, in fact, that you can attack God's people in a much more subtle way, but in a way that is nonetheless damaging for them. And so here's my advice to you. Get a load of the best-looking Moabite women and send them to the Israelites. Get them to seduce the Israelite men Get them to commit sexual immorality with the Israelite men. And when that has happened, the hearts of those men will be like putty in your hands. And then 
get their new Moabite girlfriends to invite them along to the worship of the Moabite gods instead of worshipping the God of Israel. It's a devilishly cunning plan, isn't it? So subtle, so enticing, so much more devious than overt persecution. And this, you see, was Balaam's teaching. Get the people of God to compromise. And in particular, get them to compromise in the areas of sex and worship. And if you know the the book of Numbers, you know that the Israelites fell for it hands down. And they suffered an outpouring of God's judgment for it. And you see, this is what Jesus must rebuke the church in Pergamum for. In the face of persecution, they'd done well as a church, even to the point of death in some cases. And yet Satan's second strategy, his more devious strategy, uh, tripped them up. And there was a group of teachers clearly within the church who are called here the Nicolaitans. And their teaching was a lot like that teaching of Balaam. And they were saying, well, you can be a Christian, but you don't need to be so uptight. You don't need to be so rigid when it comes to all those rules in the Bible about being faithful in the realm of sexuality or faithful when it comes to worship. You just need to relax. You can chill out a bit. You can make a a few compromises here and there. It's nothing to worry about. And you can imagine, can't you, how it all played out in the city of Pergamum where idolatry was so rife and where in order to belong to the the trade guilds and in order to earn a, a decent living, you'd have to sign up to worshipping the idols bound up with that particular trade. Let's say you're a merchant of some sort and you went to the monthly merchant's banquet and at the start of the meal, the, the chairman of that trade guild stood up and he said, well, before we took into the meal this evening, let's make an offering to the goddess Athena. Let's thank her for another excellent quarter. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I'm a Christian. What do I do now? Everyone's looking at me. They're all making their offerings to Athena. And they know that I'm a Christian. And they're looking at me with scorn in their eyes because I don't want to worship what they worship. And yet, of course, you know, don't you, that if you don't join in, you'll be thrown out of the banquet, you'll be kicked out of the guild, you'll lose your livelihood, you'll never be invited back again unless you renounce Jesus. And then at the end of the meal, the the chairman stands up again, and by now he's pretty worse for wear, and he says, well, that was a great meal, wasn't it? The wine was beautiful. Now let's continue the evening down at the temple of Athena and let's go and visit all the cult prostitutes who are there. Let's spend the evening with them. 
And of course, all the men in the room cheer. And once again, you're sitting there as a Christian and you're feeling very, very awkward in this environment, being tempted towards compromising in terms of worship and sex. And you can understand, therefore, why this teaching of the Nicolaitans was, was just so enticing to some of the Christians there in Pergamum. These Nicolaitans saying, well, you can be a Christian, but you don't need to be so uptight about it. It's perfectly fine for you to make a few compromises here and there. A few compromises in terms of what you worship. A few compromises in regards to who you sleep with. Life will be so much easier for you if you do that. Just make a compromise here and there. Just blend in with the rest of the world. If you're lucky, no one will even notice that you're a Christian. And you see, this teaching was being allowed to exist within that church in Pergamon. It's worth asking, isn't it? Is there a sense in which I have allowed the, the teaching of the, the Nicolaitans to shape my heart? That is, ask yourself this. Is there a way that I con myself into thinking that I can live as a Christian and yet at the same time I can make all sorts of compromises so that I just blend in with the world around me and I become indistinguishable from the world and therefore I don't have to face any hostility from the world for being a Christian. Have I lowered my standards in terms of sexual ethics, the Bible's sexual ethics? Not just in terms of sexual practice, but also in terms of what I watch on the television, what I look at on the internet, what I joke about with my friends. Have I lowered my standards in terms of worship? That I'm only loosely committed to the worship of God and the rest of my heart is given to worshipping what the world around me worships, be that pleasure or money or career or, or whatever else. Have I drunk in this false teaching of the Nicolaitans? Am I a compromised Christian? And this, you see, is the, the problem in that church in Pergamum. In terms of handling persecution, they'd stood up well. But in terms of handling the false teaching of these Nicolaitans who advocated compromise, some of them had capitulated. And so what do they need to do? Well, Jesus calls them. is very simple, isn't it? He says to them, the start of verse 16, therefore, repent. That's it. Therefore, repent. Very simply, put a stop to it. Turn away from living this life of compromising as a Christian and turn back to Jesus. Be truly faithful to him again, no matter what it may cost you. Ask yourself, what will that look like for you and, and for me? Where are the areas in your life as a Christian or in our life as a church where we're tempted to compromise? What do you need to stop doing or stop thinking or stop watching or stop talking about or stop pursuing in life? What do you need to put on? And what will it look like for you to walk in closer fellowship to Jesus in your home or your school or your workplace or your friendship circle, even though doing so may cost you greatly. Jesus calls compromised Christians to repentance. 
And as the church there in Pergamum hears this call to repentance, away from compromise and back to Jesus, how will they respond to this? Well, Jesus, you see, finishes by showing them two um, possible outcomes that stand before them, depending on how they respond to this call to repentance. He gives them a warning and he gives them a promise. And the warning is this, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now remember how at the start of the letter, Jesus introduced himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And as we saw, it was a picture of Christ's authority as judge over all. And on the one hand, that should comfort us when we suffer persecution as Christ's people, because we know that Jesus will bring about perfect justice in the end. And yet the fact that Jesus is the judge is a truth that cuts both ways, literally. Because here there is this warning, you see, that Jesus will come in judgment, not against the church's enemies, but actually against the church herself, in order to rid her of those who refuse to repent of living a life of compromise. Just as in the days of Balaam, God's judgment came against God's people in the wilderness because of the compromises they had made in terms of sexual sin and false worship. Jesus is saying here that if his church acts in that way, the same will happen again. Jesus can come in judgment even against some of those who are in the church. Therefore, repent. And if they do repent of this teaching of the Nicolaitans, this teaching that encouraged this lifestyle of compromise, Jesus has this wonderful promise for them. The promise is there in verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So it's a twofold promise, isn't it? Jesus promises two things to his faithful people. Hidden manna and a white stone with this new name written on it. Now what do those two things mean? Well, let's take them one by one. You know what manna is. Manna is what God provided for his people in order to sustain them and nourish them through the wilderness. And you see, Jesus is saying here that when his people repent of compromise and are faithful to him, even though that may bring them a great deal of hardship and opposition and persecution in the world, Jesus will meet all of their needs. He will provide for them. He will sustain them. He'll nourish his people through that time. But what exactly does Jesus sustain and nourish his people with? What does the manna itself stand for? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us here, does he? But he does tell us in John chapter 6 what the manna stands for. The manna stands for Christ himself. Remember those words of John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And you see, Jesus promises that he will provide for and sustain and nourish his faithful people with himself. That's what we need. We need Christ to keep us going as Christians. Nothing other than Christ himself will keep us going as Christians. He is the, the hidden manner, as he puts it here. It's hidden because I think the, the world doesn't see him for who he really is. The world doesn't see Christ for who he is. The world doesn't recognize that he is the bread of life. He's hidden from the eyes of the world in that sense. But nonetheless, he is the bread of life who sustains his faithful people throughout the wilderness of this world. And if by faith you're feeding on Christ, he will sustain you throughout all the difficulties of this life. And you will have life forevermore. And then what about the, the white stone? What does that mean? This is something that commentators are divided on. No one seems to know exactly for sure what the white stone represents. But most commentators think it's something like this. Perhaps a, a white stone that would have been used in those days in a, a court of law to declare that someone is innocent. Or perhaps a white stone given to someone as a, an invitation to a great banquet and therefore has their name written on it as their invitation. And that white stone therefore grants them entrance into this opulent feast enjoyed by the, the movers and shakers in Pergamum in those days. And so the white stone seems to be a symbol of acceptance or welcome or, or perhaps both. And for these Christians in Pergamum, they know that if they remain faithful to Jesus and if they refuse to compromise that, while the society at large in Pergamon will reject them, it will shun them because they don't join in with the idolatry and the immorality that everyone else there was mixed up in. And yet here Jesus assures his faithful church he will give to them the white stone with this new name written on it. That is, Jesus is saying here, no matter what the world may think of his people, and no matter what the world may do to his people, and no matter how the world might ostracize and reject and shun his people, nonetheless through Christ they are accepted and they are welcomed by God. And one day they will take their place at the great wedding feast of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. This is what Jesus promises to those who are faithful to him. He will nourish and sustain them all throughout this life. And in the end, they will be welcomed by God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for these words of Jesus and all that he teaches us in these letters in the early chapters of Revelation. And we pray that this evening that you would write these lessons from this particular letter upon our hearts. We pray that you would help us to be Christ's faithful witnesses, even in the face of great opposition and great persecution, as and when and however that may come our way. And as well as standing firm against opposition, 
and holding fast to Christ's name. We pray that as well as that, we would also make sure that we never become compromised as your people. That we would never lower our standards. Never seek to blend in with the world's way of living. And we confess and we're sorry for the ways in which we have compromised in the past. Perhaps in the realm of sexuality or in the realm of worship or in other realms as well. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We repent of these things. We're sorry for our compromise. And we lay hold of these promises of Jesus that no matter how we are called to suffer for him in this world, that he will provide and sustain and nourish us with himself throughout the journey of this life. And we thank you that in Christ we are accepted by you, clothed in his righteousness, declared right in your eyes. And we can look forward to being welcomed home by you when the journey is at last done. Our Father, we pray all these things in Christ's strong and precious name. Amen.